0: Good morning. Uh, I would say uh, that I want to first take a step back here just for a moment before I get on today's topic. I was not intending to podcast today at all. But, you know, I was exposed to some articles and some ideas that have kind of uh, put some fire in my soul, I suppose, and some ideas in my head. And I've learned if I if I get in that state where I'm inspired, where something's kind of connected to my my psyche or to my heart, I need to act on it because it's going to pass. Something else will happen. Something will distract me. And as the day goes on, uh, that is more likely to occur. Another thing that's a reality right now is like yesterday's podcast on Soren Institutions already has ten listens. I mean, it's in one day. Like it's. Like it's catching more than some of the other podcasts did quicker, and that's a good sign and uh yeah you know, there's a there's a certain truth in life that when you have some momentum it's it's good to keep it up and not to coast the uh The other side of it though is if somebody puts too much stuff out too much content out and it's too similar, it doesn't have enough diversity, then people are like, well, you're the one hit wonder." Like, you know, there are people that built careers off of doing the same song over and over again. And they may be popular in a way, but they're not contributing to, you know, the advancement of humankind. Uh, Time for a sip of coffee once again. Soren was a coffee drinker, apparently, but he loved um, really, really dark coffee with a lot of sugar. This is what he did, apparently. He would put a, a pyramid of sugar inside of his cup. Like, just keep spooning it in until it formed a pyramid of sorts or mound. And then he would pour extremely dark coffee on top of it. Somewhat creating like a coffee liqueur. Without alcohol, but very sweet. <clears throat> so that's what probably one of the things that inspired Soren to write. He was in a feverish pace. <clears throat> and Soren took some time before he be, officially became a published writer... You know, I think he turned 30 and then he he became uh, feverish in his writing. And, um, you know, people go through phases and parts of their life where they're more in a receiving mode. Or maybe they're just trying to deal with life on its own terms. You know, writing is is a luxury to some extent for a lot of people because it takes reflection. It takes time. You know, if you're raising kids, you know, you're working, you know, 12-hour days, trying to put food on the table you're not going to have time to write unless you're not somebody that sleeps a lot you know and some of those people have the most to say they just don't have the time to say it I'm in an unusual position that I'm fairly young I'm 58 almost 59 coming up in October I'm retired but I'm one of the few in this current economy that actually has a pension you know where I can live off of it I have savings, too, and I don't mean to boast. I'm just telling you what my reality is and why I'm able to do this. Uh, Most people who are 58 are still seven or eight years away from uh, retirement, and even then they may have to work a part-time job to supplement their income. And who knows, with inflation, things may change for me. I may have to go back to work. I don't want to. And I also just don't want to devolve into... um, an isolated stance on life where I don't give back. I feel like I'm in a position where I almost have to give back. I've been blessed to be able to have had a good career, to do something I enjoyed and something I loved, uh, and be paid decently for it. I wasn't paid, uh, you know, a lot, a lot. Every one of my brothers at their specific specific part of life when I retired was making more money than I was uh, professionally. Uh, But I have a pension, which they probably don't. So I always have to take into account that uh, you know I'm blessed. I have to use a highlighter here for a sec to highlight today's episode. Hold on a sec. It's a work in progress here. So I don't take that for granted, and I don't want to rub it in people's faces either. People get pissed off when you know I talk about having a pension. So I try to avoid it because not anybody, not many people have that these days, and so I realize that. <laughs> So my way of addressing the pension idea, and I'm got all kinds of belching going on here and burping and whatnot. I don't hide this stuff, man. I don't hide it. What you know? What is it about the world that we have the need to hide that we're human? <laughs> I don't know. You know, we want to present the best version of ourselves to ourselves and to others, and it's not even real. When I drink coffee, for whatever reason, man, the uh, sinuses really, really go. So I've listened to a few things recently and listened to some podcasts, read some articles. um, Kind of, you know, stoked, stoked the fires like the poker of life has gone in the fire of my mind and my heart and rolled the logs around a bit. And uh, there we go. So one of the podcasts and one of the articles uh, that had the same theme, I was listening to a reading, was about the mental health crisis with teenagers, especially uh, women, uh, young women, females, teenagers, girls. <laughs> oh, I really blowing my nose. Four out of ten... Teenagers are experiencing significant mental health issues, certainly is exacerbated by COVID, but not, not, uh, not from COVID specifically, just accelerated. You know, COVID has put a hurt on kids' social life. Uh, a lot of the schooling was disrupted for younger children, in particular older kids were disrupted, but not necessarily the same fundamental way. Uh, you know, young children are in the process of learning how to be socialized, how to read, how to do math. So those two years are much more significant, and this year is, was disrupted, has been disrupted, and we're going into like the third year from March uh, 2020 here. Uh, so you know, kids have been been um, been dislocated uh, educationally, academically, emotionally, psychologically and then they also had to spend a lot of time with their families and depending on the health of the family uh the kids could either be helped by that and healed by that or harmed and sometimes families issues are not of their own like if a parent lost a job if they were in the uh, like a restaurant industry you know restaurants were shut down that source of income was less less available for sure and despite all the government programs, you know, the families have suffered, and kids are suffering hunger right now, physically to some extent, and also mentally. And that's part of what I'm going to get into today. I don't think social media is helping. Uh, kids are exposed to a lot more information, a lot more experiences, and a lot more of the crowd than they would have ever been in the years past. Uh, I went to high school from 1979 to 1982. You know, a typical high school, uh, fairly wealthy, the wealthiest school district in Pennsylvania. Not that my family was wealthy. When my parents divorced, the money disappeared like a puddle of water in the desert. My parents were not on good terms. Uh, and that's true about most divorces. They divorced for a reason. But my parents' acrimony was at a fairly high level. And I was kind of caught in the middle, as were my brothers. And one of the ways it played out was financially between the North and the South of my parents, the polarities, I'm not making a Civil War analogy here, but just the polarity of North and South, um, You know, the money went to the respective poles and both parents' goal was to not give more than the other parent. There was some sense of, there has to be equity here. And to be fair, my dad can live on a very, very tight budget, not spend a lot of money. So his idea of what is reasonable financially did not accord with my mom's who likes to travel, likes to eat out. I don't blame her for that. My dad is unusual. And I think they both responded to depression in different ways. They are children of the depression. My dad became exceedingly financially tight. More generous with others than himself, for sure. And my mom, uh, I don't think she's somebody that would just be flagrant about spending money. But she enjoys the good things. She's not someone that um, denies herself things that she enjoys. And I I don't fault her for that. So even though I'm frugal, I'm not frugal to a point of being frozen with my money. I like to be generous. I like to give things away. I like to spend money on myself occasionally, on things that matter. I like to get bargains on food and beer and coffee and things like that. But, you know, I buy nice stuff that where it's important to have really nice stuff like, you know, I have a nice uh, kayak, I have a nice mountain bike, I travel. I spent probably close to $3,000 recently on my Drinking with Lincoln tour, which retraced um, Lincoln's inaugural train trip from Springfield, Illinois to D.C. It was like 11 cities in 13 days. I hit Chicago twice, so it's actually 10 cities, but saw different parts of Chicago in my uh three stays there, I landed in Chicago, was there only briefly, came back to Chicago, went elsewhere, came back to Chicago, because Chicago is the Midwest uh, train hub, and then I continued my journey from Chicago, so Chicago one, two, and three, but the first time was just to stop and to get out to Springfield. So I do spend money on things that are important for me. I worked as a school counselor for 30 years. That's the minimum you need in order to get your full pension. I have suffered a bit of a penalty that I retired before I was 60. But honestly, I couldn't do another year like the last two years. I uh, would come back from work uh, last year and the year before, sleeping 14 hours a day. It was exhausting. We were doing work that wasn't particularly useful, it wasn't particularly um, effective. We were trying to get kids to log in uh, remotely to do their work online. If they had decided to exercise the cyber option, there was nothing we could do. If they said they were scared of COVID, we gave them an open opportunity to pursue cyber schooling. And some of the kids, not all for sure, and some of the families, uh, took the easy way out. Uh, these are kids that were disengaged and they perceived that cyber would be easier than coming to school. And they may have had legitimate code fears or just using that as the reason to, to go cyber, but a lot of these kids weren't engaged. Cyber is actually harder, believe it or not, than than in school, in the building, education, because it requires a lot more self-discipline, requires a lot more self-learning and that's just the way it goes when you have a student in your building you have a lot of people around that child who's providing support and encouragement and discipline it's not all lovey-dubby to get the kid to work they have to face their teacher every day if the student's not doing the work the teacher is going to provide some negative reinforcement of why that is so i had 30 years of professional experience of working in a high school Two years of working at Millers University as an Outreach Counselor. Uh, two years of working at a reform school. I have a degree in political science uh, from Millersville University. Did very well, was going to go to law school. When I get into debate with people about politics, uh, they often come with a B game. They don't know it, but I have an A game in politics. I was a college major in that, and I also have a passion for politics and history. And I get in a lot of debates with people online. Uh, And I try to keep them constructive where they don't know what the heck they're talking about. Now, that sounds prideful for me to say that. And then when I say I have a degree in political science, oh, you're going to pull that card out, aren't you? You're just so smart, aren't you? Um, So there's this anti-intellectualism in our society that's super, super dangerous. It's one of the dangers of democracy where everybody thinks their opinion is. It's just as valid as someone else's. Now, in one way, that's correct. Uh, we all have a right to you know, free speech and to say what we think is true. But we don't have a right to assert that our opinions are more valid than someone else's if they're factually wrong. And I debate a lot of people on those issues. And then they play the card, oh, you're just an elitist. You're just a liberal. You're just a, you know, one of these know-it-alls, aren't you? You know? Uh, so I have a bachelor's degree in political science. I have a master's degree in counselor education, so a strong background in mental health issues with um, teenagers in particular and, you know, career development and academic planning and college planning and vocational planning. And I have a PhD in educational psychology, which took me 10 years. It wasn't a, uh, you know, compromised degree. It was a research degree from Temple University in Philadelphia. It was and. 20 credits. uh, Some of my master's was accepted, but I'm an expert on a lot of things. And when people debate me, they have to realize that I have a lot going for me. You know, I was married for about 10 years, but never had children. So the time that most parents are just trying to keep their head above water, you know, and just pay the bills and keep their kids on the right track. uh, You know, I, I didn't have those responsibilities. My marriage wasn't great. Uh, My wife traveled a lot for a corporation Um, that led to a lot of problems in our marriage because we weren't around each other all the time and there was always a a really rough readjustment when she was back in the picture and we didn't realize how badly that was affecting our relationship. Uh, She was getting paid very well financially and the goal was to have her be free of the work world eventually. And, uh, you know, but it had, came at a huge cost in terms of our relationship because there was continuous readjustment, renorming. But in the meantime, while she wasn't around and while, you know, I wasn't married until I was in my 40s, you know, I'd spent a lot of time just reading and listening to podcasts uh, when they started to happen. I don't know if podcasts were really that prevalent, but C SPAN 1 and 2, reading a lot of books. I mean, I read like 100 books in one year. Who does that? That's just abnormal. And when I started to read 100 books in a year, which is probably a book every four days, um, I said I should probably go back and get my PhD because I'm just doing all this reading. That's It's good and it's very broad, but let me be a little more focused and and use some of that research that I'm doing in a more focused direction. So when I talk about the following topics here, I, I know a lot about them. You know, I know a lot about these topics. I know a lot about teenagers. I know a lot about politics. I know a lot about history. I know a lot about schools. I know a lot about um, theology. I know a lot about philosophy. I'm very well read. (laughs) It doesn't mean I know it all. And there's some things that I'm not good at at all. Like you don't want me changing the oil in your car. You don't want me building a a deck for you. It's, It's not going to be a good use of my time. I can do it, but I'm not gifted in that way. So let's get to Soren here. And enough of my background, but I think it's important for you to understand who I am and and what I've done and what I know and the experiences that I offer. And I also want to say, if you're going through a tough time right now, I don't think anybody searches for Soren Kierkegaard because they're having a superficial life. I think they, if you are seeking out uh, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard, there's a hunger inside of you that wants to grow, wants to learn, wants to grapple, grapple with life's um, difficulties and life's challenges and life's beauty too, which creates its own set of questions and things like that. Um, and I also want to acknowledge that not everybody who listens to this podcast is from the United States. I will tell you my own personal opinion as uh, citizens of the United States are spoiled brats. We've had it too good for too long. We've taken for granted all the prosperity that we have. And the prosperity we have is somewhat a function of the oppression of Native peoples, taking the land, uh, not, not honoring treaties, not giving people of those communities uh, an equal shake. You know, just the whole idea of oppression and how we use resources and land and and use treaties and law to, you know, basically... Um, Manipulate native peoples out of their due right to just, just uh, compensation for the land that we were going to take from them, and then the whole the whole thing is just dark and nasty. And obviously, the oppression of African Americans, uh, which happened in all in all thirteen colonies, uh, slavery, the plantation system, was much more prevalent in the South than the North, and it has a lot to do with the weather. <clears throat> you know, there's certain crops that can can be grown in warmer weather and a large amount of crops Um, and so that led to the plantation system there's not a lot of plantation system type of history here in the north but you know there were uh, enslaved peoples that were household servants you know that did the blacksmithing and did the tailoring and you know tend to be a little bit more skill-based perhaps but it was still a economic system that didn't reward them properly Pennsylvania was the first state that outlawed, abolished slavery, but slavery existed in Pennsylvania before it was outlawed. Uh, but I think it was like 1700s, late in the 1700s somewhere, and it was somewhat through the Quaker influence, but also here in central Pennsylvania, and I've mentioned this before, uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch did not believe in slavery. Uh, there was kind of a Protestant, Reformed, Lutheran work ethic, which is... Every work that you do, whether it's the plow or whether it's the um, blacksmithing shop or whether it's uh, accounting or, you know, a lot of it was related to agriculture, of course, you know, do that for the glory of God. You know, if you put your hand to the plow and that's one of Jesus' teachings, uh, don't look back, but do your work faithfully and help yourself and help your uh, family and your community. So anyway, enough of that rant. Uh, so where am I going with all this, uh, mental health crisis with teenagers and the mental health crisis in our society. But if you come from a culture that is not as privileged as the United States and we have our problems here, don't get me wrong, but most of them are self-inflicted. If we were doing autopsy in American culture, a lot of our, a lot of our damage is because we can't handle prosperity properly and we don't have very good for lack of a better word, philosophical, theological foundations for our society anymore. We just don't. Uh, One of the things that people get into, when you want to create your own worldview and you want to build it from the ground up, you have to realize how weak that is if it's based on your own individual notions and wishes. You're building a house of sand or a house on a poor foundation, as Jesus would say. So my first thesis here is the social media uh, impact of exposing kids to a lot of the world, like images from the Ukraine or, you know, body images. One of the things that females get a lot into is they are hard on themselves if they don't look as nice as someone else. So there's a tremendous um, influence and dependence that females have on looking good. And men are responsible for that to a degree because we value attractive women uh, and women want to be attractive to some degree if they are, you know, heterosexual. Um, and that's not all wrong. I had a principal say one time, we want to desexualize, uh, women's bodies and girls bodies in high school. And this was to, to, um, to defend the relaxation of the dress code, you know, which, uh, we used to have a more stringent dress code towards females in the building. So the result was of lowering kind of some of these expectations in terms of dress code was that um, women, girls, should not have to be held to a high high standard of you know being modest about their apparel, which led to girls being more sexually, um, visually appealing to boys. Uh, And I was kind of like my principal made that announcement in a faculty meeting that we want to desexualized girls' bodies, I was like, lots of luck. You know, this is biology, man. This isn't a social contract of the 21st century. This Boys are going to be naturally attracted to a girl who's sexually attractive. And uh, is it right? No. Should we treat women as complete equals? Of course. Uh, But if you want to do away with sexual attraction among boys and girls and girls and boys, uh, lots of luck. Lots of luck. Uh, It ain't going to happen. But I think women get and girls get into the social media thing of looking better than someone. And it's a fairly weak read to base your identity on. I have dated some very, very attractive women. And there is a complex that is associated with being attractive. Um, They often got a lot of attention from boys and men as they grew up, which led to a truncation of their personality to some degree. Now, every woman handles it differently. Some handle it in a more healthy way. But it's not unusual for these uh these women, these girls to use their looks to get things that they want. Is that wrong? I don't think it is. But at least admit it, don't say that you know that you that women don't do that. And the greatest enemy to like the sexualization of women's bodies are not necessarily men, it's also other women that have those attributes that men value. It's it's the economy of attraction. And um, that's one of the hidden dark parts of, of this entire thing. And my point was, if girls are on social media and they're getting stressed out because they're not as attractive as someone else who might be, you know, Photoshopped and whatever else, is it's the parents' responsibility to moderate that. It's not the social media's company responsibility primarily. I think they have a responsibility to some degree. But it's not just the the social media's responsibility to police that. It's the parents. You know, if the girl can't interact with social media in a healthy way and it makes her suicidal, take the freaking phone away. Yeah, and they might go out and get a burner phone from somebody and they may hack it to their parents' account and get access to their phone again. That's what kids do. But parents have to be parents. You know, they have to be parents. And part of what I think is going on with all this anxiety with kids is partially a function of anxiety in our society because we no longer have answers to things. We don't have reasonable responses to the problems of life. We've bought into the idea of so much of personal autonomy that it creates a drift. We don't know where to look anymore for truth. All right, so that's part of what's going on. But also, um, we're afraid to be adults. One thing that drove me nuts about being a school counselor is I saw this change over time. Was the idea that providing guidance to kids is considered somewhat fascist fascistic or totalitarian or these are children these are kids they don't have all the answers If an adult was willing to spend time with me as a teenager when I was fifteen sixteen years old, and you know share with me their life experiences and give me some guidance in terms of what I would do. I would be thankful. I'd be kissing their hand at the end of the meeting, saying, thank you for spending an hour with me and, and giving me your life experiences. I may not agree with them, I may not follow your path, but I would dang sure be thankful that they spent the time and, and helped me out. Now there's a, there's a line there, obviously, if the parent or the uh, adult in question is is too overbearing and doesn't listen to the child, that's not good. Paul says that in one of his epistles, as parents, do not exasperate your children. Specifically, fathers, do not exasperate your children. And we have to remember this is this is a, a paternalistic culture. Roman culture was very paternalistic. It was to the point where fathers could kill their children if they wished, if the if the child was disobedient or displeased them, as they had pater. I remember what it was called paterfamilias or something. And they had this gathered kid killed, no questions asked. So Paul is telling. Fathers, specifically in this culture, in this Roman Greek culture, fathers do not exasperate your children, which means that, you know, be patient with them, listen to them, help them, guide them. Don't just get your way by being a heavy-handed authority figure. And this is so radical. People don't realize how radical the Bible actually is. It actually gives rights to, you know, servants and slaves. There's a slave called Onesimus who runs away from Titus, his owner. I think that's correct. I think the yeah, owner is Titus. I'm pretty sure, um, and you know, Paul counsels that Titus be uh, kind to Onesimus when he is returned. You know, and that's still slavery. It's not great, but again, this is the ancient world where slavery was a function of how society operated. Nobody thought slavery was wrong in the ancient world. Very few people. And so that Paul would give any kind of rights to Onesimus and any kind of counsel to Titus to be kind is so radical. We don't even understand how radical that is. You can look at women. You can look at poor people. You can look at the outsider. The Bible is very, very keen on human dignity and very, very keen on the image of God in every person. So how does this get me to the point where I am right now? Anxiety. Okay, we have a lot of anxiety in our society, and I do want to read some things in regards to what, um, what Soren Kierkegaard says. This comes from an article that was in the journal Psychopathology, edited by Robert Wolfalk, uh, Leslie Allen, Federico Durbano, and Florina Ertelli. And uh, this article itself was written by Peter Slater and uh the title of it is called anxiety the dizziness of freedom the developmental factors of anxiety as seen through the lens of psychoanalytic thinking <gasps> Whew! that's a lot to lot to um a lot to say So this is the abstract. Whenever you have a journal article, they typically have an abstract at the beginning, which explains where the article is going. So this chapter explores how anxiety is necessary for the development to take place. It explores the link between Soren Kierkegaard's existential views on anxiety with more recent psychoanalytic theories on anxiety as espoused by Sigmund Freud. Melanie Klein and Wilfred Bayon, in particular, the chapter postulates that the, an optimal degree of anxiety is more likely to be obtained by access in early life to a mind, often a parental figure, that is able to offer a containing and transformative function to the infant's primitive destructive impulses and resultant fears and anxieties. Uh, clinical examples are included to demonstrate the role of psychotherapy in providing an alternative containing presence that can tolerate and transform severe states of anxiety. Okay, so let's boil that down and take out all this psychological jargon and say, what is this essentially saying? The pr- parents provide a context and a support system for kids to grow up uh, psychologically, emotionally, physically, all those things. So this is the introduction and uh, number number one introduction. In 1844, Soren Kierkegaard wrote of anxiety as being the dizziness of freedom, the dizzying effect of looking into the boundlessness of one's own possibilities. Without anxiety, there would be no possibility and therefore no capacity to grow and develop as a human being. I don't want to read too much more about the other psychotherapists therapist and the other, um, like Freud and these two other individuals, because I think I'm going to get lost in the middle of all that. Um, I'm going to focus more on Kierkegaard and anxiety as the dizziness of freedom idea. Mawson, one of the researchers cited in this article, a guy named Mawson, a woman, a guy who knows, uh, Mawson contends that anxiety informs us of our being, anxiety being stimulated by the contact with primordial truths. It is in relation to anxiety that we are helped by other human beings to bear what is and what we are. Uh, Central to this exploration of anxiety is the idea that if we are able to endure and stay with painful emotional experiences, then we are likely to be able to grow from it. Fundamentally, this process of staying with the difficult charts is an ontological journey from a state of knowing to being. On this point, Mawson, the researcher, refers to Bayan's memories of homesickness when he was sent away to boarding school in another country as a young boy. Bayan described this experience as being akin to horrible, impending disaster with no words to adequately describe it. For the purposes of this chapter, our explanation of anxiety begins with Soren Kierkegaard's own interest in the part played by anxiety in the emotional life of the individual. Kierkegaard placed anxiety along with dread and angst, viewing it as an unfocused fear, In his thinking about anxiety, he wrote of a man standing on the edge of a cliff who, when looking over the edge, experiences a visceral fear of falling. But what accompanies this fear is also a terrifying impulse to intentionally throw himself off the edge. Kierkegaard posited that this is an experience of anxiety or dread because it puts us in touch with the very nature of possibility, in other words, to choose to do one thing or another, in this case to stay firmly rooted to the ledge or throw oneself off of it, what is striking to Kierkegaard uh, was the individual's complete freedom to choose one's options. It is this freedom to choose, even the most terrifying of all options open to us, that creates dread and anxiety. Kierkegaard thus formulated anxiety as being the dizziness of freedom. In Kierkegaard's thinking, anxiety forms us of the choices we have at hand. He takes As his starting point, the biblical example of Adam, who was faced with the choice of whether to eat from the forbidden tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, or to refrain, Adam was not aware of good or evil, right or wrong, but Kierkegaard emphasizes that the um, anxiety is born when Adam, knowing of God's prohibition about eating from the tree, still chooses to eat from it. Kierkegaard recognizes the damning nature for mankind of Adam eating from the tree, but also asserts the positive value of the idea that anxiety informs humankind of the choices we have at hand. This infers growth in the form of opportunity to become self-aware, the need for personal responsibility, the potential for learning and growing from experience. What is pivotal to the more contemporary study of anxiety is how Kierkegaard viewed anxiety as an opportunity for growth, for a more self-centered need for immediacy, from a more self-centered need for immediacy to a more self-reflective, self-conscious state, Kierkegaard wrote: "Whoever has learned to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. Anxiety is freedom's possibility, and only such anxiety is through faith, is through faith absolutely educative, because it consumes all finite ends and discovers all their deceptiveness." And no grand inquisitor such dreadful torments and readiness anxiety has, and no secret agent knowing knows as cunningly as anxiety to attack his suspect in his weakest moments or make alluring the traps in which he will be caught. And no discerning judge understands how to interrogate and examine the accused as does anxiety, which never lets the accused escape, neither through amusement, nor by noise, uh, nor not during work, neither by day or night. It is the idea that through anxiety, not only can the individual become aware of their potential, but that anxiety can also lead to an awareness of one's own true identity and sense of freedom. Kierkegaard's philosophy of anxiety is a useful point of origin in later thinking of uh, other therapists, including Sigmund Freud. And I'm going to conclude there, because I think it gets into a lot of psychological uh, theory. And I'm, I'm not against Freud and some of these other theorists, but you know, one thing that I would always remember is I don't subscribe to their theories fundamentally because they don't have a Christian worldview. I'm a Christian. I believe uh, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life as imperfectly as I practice it. I believe that and anything that denies that fundamental uh, premise or thesis is already off on the wrong track regardless of the insight that person might provide. For example, I think Freud is correct when he talks about like the subconscious being extremely powerful and childhood experiences as being extremely powerful in the formation of ego and identity. I don't disagree with that. I disagree with some of his other premises that you know his lack of seeing God is is reasonably and intellectually defensible. I don't disagree with Marx on the, his ideas of capital when capital accrues among the capitalist, it creates a certain momentum for people who have capital to get more capital and for those that don't have capital to lose the capital they have. We see that in our society. So a Marxian critique of capitalism is quite correct. Now, its remedy is incorrect. It doesn't then therefore suggest that communism or Marxism works uh, because all you do is create another elite who have capital and they are the brutes. They are the ones that are willing to kill other people for money. And machinery and for technology and all that stuff. So, Marxist critique, like the Communist Manifesto, is not incorrect in terms of analysis of the dangers of capital and how it favors the strong versus the weak and just continues to favor the strong over and over, more so as time continues. What is incorrect about communist and Marxist thinking are the remedies for that. And anybody who studied Marxism historically, as it's been implemented, either in Cuba or Cambodia or the Soviet Union or China, sees an elite becoming more wealthy and the non-elite becoming less wealthy. And China, despite all of its great manufacturing prowess, is still a very, very poor country. You know, most of its manufacturing is along the coast, but you go uh, 500 miles in into the into the agrarian countryside, poverty is very, very prevalent. And, um, you know, communism doesn't have an answer to that. It doesn't know how to solve that problem. Only capital solves that problem, giving people capital. China is an interesting example, though. It has more economic freedom than political freedom. And In the West, those two things are are twins. They're literally born at the same time. In China, they've been able to increase their economic prosperity without giving political freedom. It runs counter to Western thinking. But again, it's an Eastern country based on Confucian ideas and other ideas that are not Western in nature, more communitarian versus individualistic. So Soren talks about anxiety as the uh, dizziness of freedom. And when we talk about kids in particular facing a world, and again, social media plays into this. You know, back when I was a kid, my frame of reference was my high school. I didn't think about too much about beyond that. It was concentric circles going out. But kids these days can access, you know, um, images of what's going on in the Ukraine or have friends in Tokyo because they have a love of anime or something. Uh, and that's really, really good. The pipeline, the super highway, the information super highway is great in a lot of ways, but it takes maturity because you're absorbing a lot of information, a lot of experiences. And remember for kids, they don't see social media as being an adjunct to their life. They see it as part of their life. They see it as real as adults would see their right hand, so when you take a kid's phone from them it's like you're amputating their hand uh, i wouldn 't like somebody taking my phone i 'm probably more like kids than I like to admit, but kids tend to see technology and phones and computers and you know the music is part of who they are it 's deep wired and deep, deeply embedded into their physical reality. And so they can have friends they've never met in person that they will talk to about the most important things in their lives, and they don't see anything odd or unusual about that. Whereas I would typically refuse to be a friend of somebody on Facebook or Instagram, which are my more personal accounts, if I don't know them in real life. I don't know them out and about, either from the past or the present. I just don't friend them. It's weird. I don't like it. I'm not going to tell them my personal business. Uh, I mean, yeah, my Twitter account's public because it's Birkegaard, uh, my blog is public because it's Birkegaard, and my YouTube channel is public because it's Birkegaard, and his blog is public because it's Birkegaard, but you remember Birkegaard is only a part of who I am. It's the public face of my philosophy trying to solve practical problems, but it's not it's not intrinsically who I am even though I like the name. So Soren had a lot of anxiety in his life. His dad, when he had Soren, it was the second marriage that he had. His dad was 58, so he was an old dude for the 1800s. Being 58 and being a dad these days is old. There's still hope for me, I suppose, that I could have a child. It was his second wife. It was a servant in the household or somebody that had functioned in the household as a servant. Soren's dad used to take him to graveyards when he was a kid. His dad was like consumed with death and seriousness, and I don't think the mom had a lot of influ- influence on him. If I remember correctly, his his second wife and Soren's mom passed away when Soren was fairly young too. I could be incorrect about that, but there's very little mention about his mom at some point. So his dad used to take him to graveyards. His dad had a lot of books in the house, which would probably be equivalent today to social media. Soren could expose himself to all the Western philosophers, Greek philosophers, Roman thinkers, uh, German philosophers. You know, Dad had a huge library. Dad had the means as a former wool merchant to buy all these things. So Soren's mind was expanded at a very, very early age to a lot of ideas, and that's great, but it also creates a lot of burdens for kids. If they're reading Das Kapital when they're 10 years old, that's a heavy load. Soren's dad also had an event where he cursed God. I guess life wasn't going well for him, and he, uh, Soren's dad thought that he had cursed the Holy Spirit, which means in the Bible, Jesus says that's the one sin that God can't forget uh, and forgive. Uh, God the Father, you can raise your fist up against. God the Son, you certainly can, and people did and were forgiven like the Apostle Paul. But Jesus mentions in John that he who curses the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. And I think that gets fundamentally to the idea that anybody who curses the truth, anybody who believes uh, the lie that there's no such thing as objective truth, um, if they actively act on that, that, that that Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life, that the Holy Spirit uh, is, is is Jesus' advocate, too. He's our advocate, but he also, like, there's a role the Holy Spirit plays in the baptism of Jesus where he uh, operationalizes his ministry. So anybody who denies the truth, by definition, is lost. Their Their soul is going to starve and be condemned because truth is what feeds the soul. It's like food, right, or sunshine for plants. So Soren grew up in a very, very gloomy household, and uh, only a gloomy household that had a vestige of Christianity. I think his dad was, was faithful, but also worried that he had cursed the Holy Spirit. It's like this paradox that there's hope that comes from faith, but also despair. And Soren is trying to work that way, way through that and way out of it. So here's my final concluding comments that were 41 minutes here. And thank you for the ability to do this. I hope it's not repetitive or redundant or stupid. I'll keep doing it as long as you all keep listening. <clears throat> so here's an armchair idea of of mental health to some degree and please don't treat me as a therapist, but I I have a lot of experience with this and I would kind of provide just the ideas to think about. If you're in need of counseling or therapy, please look up a reputable therapist in your in your community or even a telehealth to get the help that you need. But I tend to see depression as past-oriented, Okay, which means that if you had traumatic lifetime experiences that you're unable to make sense of, then that leads to depression. Usually people that have depression have significant trauma in their background. Um, And they may, on the surface, look like they had a great childhood, but you probe and you peel and you start talking about what they dealt with Depression's is usually an investment in the past that people have not made their peace with. Now, we all have trauma. Again, as an American, I have to be careful about saying poor me or poor us. One thing that humbled me as a school counselor in my own story was realizing that the pain that I had gone through as a youth, even though it was real, was nowhere comparable to some of the things my kids had been through. Like They had stories that would just make me want to um, weep and vomit uh, I mean, I'm not going to get into it right now, but I will tell you that anybody who grows in a healthy home, relatively speaking, not a perfect home, but a healthy home, does has no comprehension how hard it can be for certain people to grow up in in a in a home where there's not stable parents or abusive parents, addictive, neglectful, and this kind of casts dispersion on the Christian view of like focus on the family, which is we really, we're all like got it together, and God is our is our is our is our hope, and you know, our kids are happy, and and that's sometimes a fraud anyway. But you know, if you come from a relatively healthy home, one danger in that is you don't have a lot of experience that would give you empathy with somebody who grew up in a family where mom was addicted to, you know, to opioids, or you know, dad was an alcoholic, or there were multiple um, marriages or relationships that created other children. And now you have stepkids and all that confusion. Um, so depression is people's inability to make peace with their past. And, you know, people can go through extraordinarily difficult things like Victor Frankl through the concentration camps and still walk out with their, you know, with hope, you know, it will either do one of two things. It'll either make a person or break a person, but like Joseph in the old Testament, who was sold into slavery by his older brothers because of jealousy. And he was a prideful little kid with a, Multicolored jacket. If you don't know these stories, do yourself a favor and read the Bible. I mean, even if you're not going to be a Christian, at least understand these stories. Uh, they teach a lot about life, but Joseph was sold into slavery uh, to Egypt by his older brothers because he was a cocky little child who was gifted. We all know kids like that. And Joseph then spent several decades being slave and a servant and being accused of crimes he didn't commit, of rape, uh, specifically a Potiphar's wife, was thrown into prison, almost got sprung from prison because he was a good prisoner and helpful to the prison staff. And then he was again put down into prison further, forgotten by the king. But Joseph made sense of his past. You know, He made sense of all the trauma he'd gone through and he said uh, God was in it in a way. So what you meant for evil, when he finally reconciled with his older brothers, in Egypt during the famine, he says what you meant for evil, he's not saying what his brothers did was good. He's saying what you meant for evil has turned out to be good because God was in it. Right? God allowed it, but it doesn't mean God was the author of it. It does mean that God made Joseph understand uh that God that he was in it and God was with him in the prison and in various stations of his life were which were painful. So depression is a function of investing in the past in things that no longer can be changed now people still have issues with their past their past becomes their present like the parents very rarely ever change you know they may may change in a way but you know sometimes things aren't in the past really they even the past is not the past as Faulkner says um, but I think depression is an investment in things that are done that are past that you can't change you have to make your peace with it so let's now look forward okay so it's like the Janus thing and 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 the theater, or whatever the Janus god was, that had a face looking backwards and then a face looking forwards—you know—to the future. Uh, mental health in terms of the future is anxiety. It's like all the bad things that could happen, even the good things. Right? The good things can be hard. A lot of a lot of life—if you have something worthwhile, you know—and you're working towards it. You know, you can lose it. You know, it, it, life is capricious. The fates are 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 not always dependable. And then choices itself. What do I do with my life? How do I live my life? All those things that we've talked about previously, all the life choices you have to make. um, Sounds very good to be free, but the price of freedom is anxiety. The price of being free or having free choices is the choices themselves and the difficulty in figuring out the path. When you have many, many paths to choose from, Uh, Which path do you take? And can you change your past? And how do you change your past? Do you have to go back to the beginning? Can you make a sideways move? All those kind of things. So depression is based on the past, investing in the past, on things you can't change. And then uh, anxiety is uh, a fear of the future, or at least a feeling that the future has enormous weight. And every choice that you make has some significant degree of either advancing your purpose or not. And I think the way that we help kids is to say, hey, take a deep breath. You're not the first person to grow up. Um, The things that seem so important to you right now will over time lessen because you'll encounter other things that are hard and perhaps even more difficult, but you'll be older, so you'll be able to deal with it maybe in a way. We have to hold kids' hands psychologically, but we can't make them uh, depend on us. Anybody who has a need to be valued by teenagers in terms of affirming them as a professional, if you need that deeply, you are vulnerable to being exploited by teenagers who, you know, like most of us, would like to avoid doing their work and avoid um, you know, taking the hard steps of becoming an adult. Uh, so I saw in my career teachers and educators that were very dependent on the, the approval of kids in order to feel as whole human beings. And that came from their own pain. Perhaps they were not popular when they were kids or were very popular or try to relive that experience. And a part of that is natural and part of that's okay. Like we we don't want the kids to hate us. Like They should have affection for us because it makes them more willing to listen to our advice, right? We should listen to them because they have a story to tell, even though it's incomplete and it's still being developed, uh, which is true about all of us to a degree. But with kids in particular, you know, the concrete's still wet on their psyche, you know, and you could step on that and put your footprint right in the middle of that. And that's not right. You have to treat that gingerly. But we also should be willing to act as adults. And any parent who's a good parent knows they're not, not always going to be popular with their child. Their, their job is not to be popular. Their job is to raise their child so their child is independent and not to hurt their child unnecessarily, but to let the child work through the own problems that they have because they can develop the confidence in order to solve problems by solving problems. It's a tautology. You only get good at solving problems by solving problems. And parents that step in, The helicopter parent, as they uh, say, it's not just helicopter parents, it's helicopter parents with gunships on their helicopter that plow out uh, enemies perceived or real. or also called the snowplow parent that runs the snowplow in front of the parent and makes the road behind the snowplow easy to drive. You can't throw the keys on the kid's lap and say, hey, lots of luck, good job, or lots of luck learning how to drive by yourself. Here are the car keys to the $40,000 car. And uh, lots of luck, and maybe watch a video. No, you gotta go out and train the child how to drive. You have to teach them the situations they can encounter in driving. You have to allow them to drive in snow before they can drive in snow. You have to allow them to do parallel parking so they know how to do that. So it's progressive, but you guide them and you have brakes too, right? So if you're a driver's ed instructor and you're out on the road, you know, one thing that happens is that uh, teacher has brakes on their side of the car. And they can reach the steering wheel if they need to. So be an adult, will you? Stop de- demanding that kids have all the answers. Just realize how foolish you are if you tell kids, well, you can do whatever you want. And, you know, it's up to you to kind of figure it out. And Like, come on, help them out a little bit, will you? And be willing to give them advice. And be willing to step on some toes sometimes if they need some correction. Don't, don't be so dependent on kids that you're pathetic. So I will leave it at that. Uh, Soren says some hard things to us says things that are difficult, uh, but that difficulty allows us to cope and to grow and to learn and become more whole people. So I will leave it at that. Amen.